You're listening to Pomegranate Health, a podcast for physicians of the RACP. When I first, when I graduated from medicine in 1977, I arrived in Heathrow the following year, and I got a taxi from Heathrow to the hotel, and it was very clear to me what the value proposition was for me in regards to the taxi driver. He knew how to get there. He had the knowledge. In fact, he passed an exam called the knowledge. That's Professor Des Gorman of Health Workforce NZ and the University of Auckland in his presentation to the 2018 RACP Congress. I arrived there two weeks ago. My phone had better road intelligence than he did. I knew where the congestion was, I knew where the road works were, I knew where the road traffic accidents were. What was I paying for? What was the value proposition? The value proposition no longer exists as it did. All he did was drive the taxi. Now, in 10 years' time, or even five years' time, when we go to the autonomous taxi, there won't be a value proposition for that taxi driver because, frankly, I won't need him. The theme of that Congress in May was disruption. Disruption is what happened to journalism when all the advertising revenue and content went to social media. Or to the music industry with the onslaught of MP3 files and digital sharing platforms. Could it happen to healthcare too? When I graduated in 1977, the consultative era of medicine, someone came to me with a complaint and I used that knowledge to solve that complaint, to provide an explanation for the complaint and maybe to provide a way in which the complaint could be managed. The value proposition was explicit. But now we have Google Maps and what is the value proposition for the London taxi driver? And we have participatory healthcare and the same question is what is the value proposition for healthcare providers when we no longer own the intelligence, when the intelligence is immediately available and accessible to every single person that walks in the door. There's lots of technology to replace us, so we wouldn't want to be too complacent. In the context of the time and cost to train them and the cost to employ them, 15 years and about a million dollars if you aggregate it up, what value will doctors add as virtual mechanisms become more comprehensive, more accessible, and designed for self-interpretation and self-management. What value will doctors add in the milieu of purpose-trained technicians and as robotics become cheaper and more dexterous? And in fact, you need to ask this next question. Are there some health professions that are more at risk of being disrupted than others? For example, it's hard to imagine when I'm sick that I won't want a person to hold my hand, but already I can get a robot to do everything that a retail pharmacist does. So in fact, the question is, where does the medical profession sit in the context of this Vulnerability. Let me tell you, we're profoundly more vulnerable than nurses and midwives. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and over two episodes, I'm going to look at some of the forces challenging medical practice today. With Google and wearable devices, consumers have more information than ever at their fingertips and greater expectations about participating in decision-making. We'll hear about some alternative models of health delivery and about helping patients navigate the choices before them. In the next episode, we'll also hear from some consumers about how they see the existing power structures and what words like patient and consumer mean to them. This is a really broad conversation. It's not a documentary or a manifesto. Some of the details will have to be explored in future episodes. First, let's go back to Des Gorman, who I interviewed a few months after his provocative seminar. The uh, interesting thing about the RACP session for me was that people came to me afterwards and said how provocative and radical my perspective was. And I found that particularly amusing because 
to argue that health is a service industry and we should understand who we serve and what their expectations are, I would have thought was not provocative <laughs> whatsoever. So from a value proposition point of view, if I am to be an information broker as compared to the, the knower of all things, I need a range of different skills. I need to understand their coping strategies, what's their illness perceptions, what, their, what is their sickness beliefs. And, and as a medical academic, I thought even further still and thought, well, am I guilty exactly as are the trainers of London taxi drivers of preparing people for an era that no longer exists? And, and how clear is this curriculum of the future to you? In, in one of your articles, uh, you write that uh, desirable healthcare requires a range of health psychology skills, which are notably not the core domains of conventional medical education. Uh, elsewhere, you, you've compared it to a, a medicine to a, a service industry. What are the skills required in that context? The, in terms of a service industry, if we, if we align ourselves with other service industries, the starting point is an intimate knowledge of what people who are going to use that service expect, need and want and are prepared to pay for, either directly or indirectly through taxation. But no service industry would survive for long without an explicit knowledge of user requirements and user expectations. Mm -hmm. And I'd suggest to you that most health systems would have no idea what the users require or expect. What happens now when people come to see me? Well, generally they know more about the health condition than I do. They're, well, they're, they're certainly a bit versed in it in terms of their own experience than I am. And so what's my value proposition? If you come to see me uh, and you have a particular health problem, one of the first things I have to do is to work out whether your approach to healthcare is to want to know everything possible about it, in other words, you're a monitor, or your predominant coping strategy is to blunt. In other words, you say, hang on, hang, hang on, dears, don't give me all that, just reassure me that you know what's going on and it's going to be okay. I need to understand your sickness perception. For example, if every experience you've had of someone having breast cancer, they die within six months, there's no point in me engaging in a conversation with you about breast cancer which does not directly address that yeah. sickness belief or that illness perception. So information brokerage requires the ability to determine the sort of coping strategy the person has in front of you, what their sickness beliefs are and what their illness perceptions are. Those are some very sophisticated communication skills. Because if you get it wrong, you will cause profound distress and they are unlikely to take your advice seriously about which of the choices available to them might have the greatest utility to them. Mm. So the physician of the future has to develop a range of communication abilities and health psychology insights, which historically we've never prepared them for. Another call to arms at Congress came from Jen Morris. For almost a decade, she's been championing the inclusion of community voices on hospital boards, research bodies and other committees. Here, she tells the story of Greg Owen, who in 2015 found a way to disrupt the red tape required for approval of HIV prophylactic drugs by the UK Health Service. Yes, so Greg Owen is a great example of just deciding that the problem can't wait, so I'll do what I can to solve it. 
Greg was, is a uh, British man uh, living in the UK at the time of these events who was a sex worker, who was homeless um, and who was a gay man. And he uh, was starting to become aware from whispers out in the community that what we would now call PrEP, uh, preventative treatment to prevent HIV, was, was being trialled. And he wanted to be part of that trial because he was very well aware how, how risky his situation was and he wanted to do the responsible thing. Unfortunately for him, uh, he was not able to to make it onto that trial. And so he didn't get access to PrEP in its trial stage. Mm. And the TGA in the US had approved it and he wanted to get access to it and was desperately, desperately, desperately trying to get access to it. Um, was unsuccessful in doing so because the NHS was kind of uh, dithering over various questions about getting it in and how they were going to do it and whether it should be done. And he then subsequently was tested and found out that he had HIV and was obviously devastated that this opportunity to prevent it had been missed while the NHS was trying to get their act together. So he basically decided that he was going to uh, leapfrog all of that bureaucracy and find a way to help people get access to PrEP. He did a lot of research and found that there was a legal way to buy it online from a supplier overseas. Obviously, it wouldn't be government funded, but it was possible to do it and you could buy it for a whole lot less than you could if you tried to do it through UK systems. Um, he set up a website to direct people to where they could access it, uh, called I Want Prep Now, and he got the tablets tested properly to check it was all legitimate and to check that they were uncontaminated and it was all above board and they were real, mm. and facilitated access to that drug in that time for thousands and thousands of people uh, in the UK and for that matter elsewhere. And in the time period that he was doing that, um, the incidence of new diagnoses of HIV in the UK dropped by 30%, and in a particular health, sexual health centre in London dropped by 40%. We can't be 100% certain, of course, how many factors were involved in that, but it is a striking a striking reduction in that time period. Uh, subsequently, there have been changes to, to access to PrEP, but really what he did was prevent thousands of people potentially from being infected with HIV now and in the future by just deciding that he wasn't going to wait and by using his kitchen table and a laptop essentially to to direct people to where they needed to go. He made no money out of it. There was there was none of that. He just felt so passionate about we can't wait and these young people's lives can't wait that that was what he decided to do. That is a, a really good example of digital disruption. It's also an elegant example in the sense that there's no question about the medical benefits of this intervention. But there's a whole bureaucracy behind that. And I sort of want to delve into that a little bit, perhaps playing devil's advocate to see which of these barriers can come down. So the cost of the drug varies hugely from country to country. Uh, in the UK and the US, the name brand costs at least $1,800 Australian per month um, wholesale. And the drugs developer had a patent and an IP intellectual property that excluded local competition from generics in those states. Although in Canada, you could get the generic drug for about $600 since August 2017. This all sounds very unfair, um, but there are defensible reasons why IP should be protected. I mean, these companies wouldn't invest in research at all if they couldn't make some money off the one in 20 drugs that actually make it to market. Yes, I do understand, uh, of course, that there needs to be a financial incentive for private organisations to develop products uh, for medical markets, whether they be drugs or devices or, or anything else. And we you know that you could write a thesis about that. But I think what, what 
Greg's um, generic point might be, you know, underneath the complexities of that particular story, I guess is about about time. And there's a lot of questions about both the financial and ethical uh, aspects of granting essentially compassionate access mm. to those medications in, in that time. Um, I don't have a magic answer for that, but I think what is important is that we as a society make sure that as much as is possible, we're involving the community in making those decisions, not just the patients and the consumers, but all of us, in a sense, um, have have a stake in the way the PBS and, and other systems operate in this country. We all pay for those. I guess all I'm saying is that there might be explanations for withholding public funding that aren't sinister, you know, self-serving, even if, the, even if the company that makes PrEP is called Gilead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was an HIV advocacy charity in the UK that actually brought the case to court. And one argument that was raised against public funding of PrEP was that it undermined safe sex messages. Um, in Australia, PrEP is discounted by Medicare. But in a local study published in The Lancet, it was shown that over four years this had resulted in decreased use of condoms, even among men not on the drug. So public health messaging is a tricky problem that you can't rush into. I mean, of course. And I think, um, you know, what, what I was uh, trying to get across with, with telling Greg's story in the limited time that I had wasn't even necessarily about, you know, the wisdom of what he did or didn't do or, or any of, of those, I guess, value-based conclusions, but it's about the point I was making that he wasn't going to wait, um, you know, for, for things to, to go the way he, he wanted them to. Um, and I think the lesson there and the lesson in the public health challenges that we face with, with communication is that maybe if there are reasonable and rational reasons for things, which, as you say, most of the time there are, you know, people go to work trying to do the right thing on a daily basis, of course. Um, it's about communicating those in a way that is understandable and helpful and meaningful yeah, and yeah. engages the people that need to understand why things are being done the way they are. And an accessible explanation, you know, there are formal documents that are published that, that outline the reasons and outline the criteria, and that's laudable and, and important that that's done. But we need to ask ourselves, are there helpful alternative forms in which we could communicate that information? More and more institutions in healthcare are formalising consumer participation. Indeed, Australia's Pharmaceutical Benefit Advisory Committee has two consumer representatives and regularly seeks submissions on drug applications from patient groups. The relationship of patients with the health services is changing all the time as technology and information evolve. For example, implanted glucose or heart rate monitors that talk to your mobile phone and to your physicians. And there are all sorts of wearable devices widely available that remind you how much exercise to do or when you should take a meal. Some observers promise that these will put more power in the hands of the public, give them more agency over their own health. The idea was popularised by US cardiologist Eric Topol in his book The Patient Will See You Now and the viral lectures that followed. Let's hear from Des Gorman about some strategic applications of tools that benefit users and providers. The story was, it was a particular auntie who had unstable diabetes and her daughter became concerned because she kept falling over. By the time they sorted out her insulin dose and got her into a more stable footing, literally, uh, it took the thick end of four months. 
I think there were four visits to the GP. There was one visit to see a specialist. There were, I think it was two or three avoidable hospitalizations because of falls, plus the trip to the pharmacy. So to change an insulin regimen to the point of achieving stability took that time and had that many interventions at that cost. Mm. The alternative story is that she has a wearable. When she falls over, the wearable sends out a signal and a district health nurse goes out and sees her, downloads the biometrics from her wearable, uploads it into the cloud to to a virtual health team, which looks at that information. And over the next 45 minutes, that district health nurse pops next door and talks to the neighbour about what local community resources are available for auntie. And then she looks through auntie's cupboards and they chat about how she prepares her food and how she's going about shopping and so on. And then the virtual health team comes back with a solution to change her insulin regimen. And an email's already gone off to the pharmacy and the new medicine's on its way out so that the district health nurse can walk auntie and her daughter through that. And the question I pose is, of the technology required to make that second story come true, how much of that technology already exists? And the answer is all of it. Mm-hmm. And it's all exi- or it's existed for a long period of time. So why isn't that second story the usual story? And the answer is we've got, we worry about how we regulate people in a virtual health team. And the third thing is some of the established professions like medicine, for example, worries that we may not even be in the virtual health team at all because we, we may not add value <laughs> in a world where algorithms might solve most of those problems. There's a, um, one of the papers you reference is um, authored in part by one of our fellows, Professor Peter Brooks at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, along with some accountants from Ernst & Young, and they modelled the potential effect of fitness trackers uh, in prevention of type 2 diabetes and predicted that it would help cut prevalence of the disease by 1 or 2% by the year 2030, whereas in the absence of these tools, prevalence would increase by 8 to 12%. There's another uh, gee whiz example that you gave by an organisation called Kaiser Permanente in the US. Uh, Kaiser Permanente is a closed health system which has its own insurance company and its own health provider systems, and it has 12 million subscribers. It's basic. It's based in Northern California. It's one of the half dozen best health systems in the US. Mm-hmm. And as their 12 million subscribers were getting older and older, they knew they had to strip some operating costs out. The system was simply too expensive. When they did surveys of its users, its members, its subscribers, it got a very clear message, and that was, most of my health needs are predictable. So I have a completely predictable health need with a predictable outcome. I'm having to take a day off work to drive to your building, to park in your car park, to pay a parking fee, to see your provider for a completely predictable intervention. They said, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Now, in one year, Mick, they went from 110 million GP visits to 52% of those being delivered virtually, email, text, phone message, Facebook, Skype, and so on. My view is they'll eventually end up at about 80% of all primary care being delivered virtually. Now, the issue, the subtext then is, well, what do you do with all the doctors who originally were providing that care? And the answer is they add value when disease becomes biopsychosocially complex and unpredictable. And instead of seeing six people for 10 minutes, they may see someone for an hour who genuinely needs that sort of expertise on a face-to-face intervention. So, in fact... 
What Kaiser's done by virtualizing what can be virtualized is freed up resource to add value where, in fact, a virtual mechanism is not appropriate. Um, you've, you've written several articles taking issue with the funding model of health. Um, you, you take particular issue with the centralised funding and the, you know, the idea that it's lumbering and expensive and, and an alternative model would be disability services in New Zealand, which sound quite like the NDIS in Australia, which give the individual uh, the, the resources to, to spend on the needs that they see fit rather than get the stock treatment from some monolithic provider. So are you imagining this kind of flexibility across the whole health service? Look, I, I think that's right. I think, first of all, what health systems have tried to do since Adam is fit a single funding model across all the possible health interventions, and that doesn't make sense. For example, if you have a high-utility intervention, such as a cataract procedure for an otherwise independent older person, then you don't need to go to sophisticated commissioning. Just piecework it, because there's high inherent value in the process. Mm. But the minute you're going to mental health issues or lifestyle diseases like diabetes and obesity, then a fee for service or transactional funding is nuts because all you're going to get are transactions. And what you really want to achieve is high value outcomes. Uh, healthcare now consumes, what, 40% of state budgets. And when you have national health systems like the UK and New Zealand, it's about 20% of government spend uh, at what point do you have to say this is no longer affordable? Well, it's way past that point already. And we already know that in terms of OECD countries, more money does not translate into better health outcomes. We already know that. In the same way that we know that more doctors doesn't. Tax-based health systems only work when you have a large number of fit young people paying taxes relative to the elderly who don't pay taxes and consume health care. So we're already past the tipping point of affordability. It's how we public systems learn from groups like Kaiser about how we can innovate in a way which actually increases the net value proposition of the investment society makes in health systems. Professor Gorman articulated more of this thesis in the discussion at Congress, so I'll slot that in here before returning to the interview. I actually think uh, catastrophic health care, which is why we need hospitals, hmm. uh, does involve a very different model of service delivery than the majority of health needs. But you can't use a logic which underpins catastrophic health care and extrapolate it. Uh, I'm not here to defend the US health system. There's no such thing. When you evaluate health care in the US as a system, it always ends up bottom because it's not a system. But there are systems in it that beat the pants off any public health system. Kaiser, Partners, Inter, uh, Intermountain, Virginia Mason beat the Australian health system by a million miles. So no, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think catastrophic care invokes a very different model than the 99% of healthcare which occurs outside intensive care units. I mean, your, your idea is that if consumers are voting with their wallets, let's say, that, that it holds the health system to account on performance and efficiency, that, you know, the, the market never lies. But in, the, in this free market health economy where, you know, you can pick and choose any services you want, is there a risk that some small groups of patients who don't have the weight of purchasing power behind them, uh, that their needs go unmet, that that service is, un is not provided. What I'm talking about is not constraining them to a range of existing services. If all you're doing is giving um, consumers a menu to choose from, that just encourages providers to continue to offer the same sort of services in the same ways. 
you know, one of the concerns that I have is that, sure, you could have virtual consultations, you could have apps to remind you to take your meds. You could imagine inadvertently that this might distance the relationship between the clinician and the patient, that they might spend the clinician might spend less time explaining the discharge package to the to the patient because the app was going to take care of it all just just in the same way there was uh, in the last decade there was the problem with physicians talking to their computer screens instead of looking the patient in the eye oh look i agree but as i pointed out before we can't have a one-size-fits-all mix if you're brave enough to be process agnostic and allow local solutions for local needs you end up with workforce solutions which look nothing like conventional health services. For example, in one region of New Zealand, mental health services for the group we're looking after are provided by middle-aged Māori women that we've upskilled because we know that young Māori with drug and alcohol problems and mental health issues are deeply, deeply respectful of what they call aunties. So we've mobilised the aunties. Uh, Looks absolutely nothing like the mental health services across the road which are still providing conventional services in conventional ways and I may say getting conventional results. I'm just nervous. Maybe I sound like the, a wet blanket, but there are, you know, there are already three hundred and fifty thousand mobile apps out there to, you know, inspire your fitness or monitor your health. Um, very few of them have been demonstrated to be that useful. There's the wearables industry is it reportedly worth fifty billion US dollars a year. But are these things creating more noise than they are creating signal? For example, in the UK, Babylon Health, the company Babylon Health, was warned by regulators because their app GP at hand missed symptoms and had a high rate of false positives. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, Nick. First of all, technologies come into the marketplace without regulation as compared to drugs, which are heavily regulated. So you're quite right. Most of them are useless, and most of them are very expensive exercises in uselessness. What we've allowed the technologists to dictate how things look rather than us saying, this is the model of care, now this is the technology we need to enable that model of care. It is the tail wagging the dog. The second thing is, though, Babylon exists because of an unmet need. Babylon exists because the sorts of services people want aren't being provided to them. So the vast bulk of unmet health need in the European Union is not going to be vulnerable to more doctors and uh, more money. It's in fact the consumers want health care that does not look like or is not delivered in the way it's conventionally delivered. So the Babylons and these other technologies are growing up in a vacuum created by the inability of conventional health providers to understand what consumers want and provide it in a way which meets that need. The absolute irony of the disruption we're seeing is the, the value proposition healthcare providers bring is increasingly their ability to communicate. Mm -hmm. The whole point of shifting the locus of responsibility takes us from a dictatorial role to a communicative role. And those communication skills are going to be the mainstay of how our providers add value uh, in the future, which is, is a, if you, could, if you like, you can see there's a bit of an irony For every clever application of participatory tech, there are other less glittering stories. For example, a birth control app is being reported to Swedish regulators after 37 users fell pregnant. In response to such cases, the UK's National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence 
has just published evidence standards for digital health technologies. But even without these new apps and devices, there's Dr Google. One in 20 internet searches are health-related. And former AMA president Dr Bill Boyd has warned that there are dangers of this resource as well as benefits. Dr Boyd told me over a phone call that lay referrals from friends and family are nothing new. But with the internet, the scale of this phenomenon is much, much greater. Every day, healthy women come to his gynaecology clinic alarmed by what they've read online, asking for tests and investigations to rule out unlikely conditions. For example, one message trending among his patients is that doctors should be testing for CA125, a serum protein sometimes associated with ovarian cancer. In reality, the assay isn't sensitive or specific enough to be used as a screening tool and would do more harm than good in asymptomatic women. At a national level, Bill Boyd estimates that unnecessary consults and tests evoked in this way are likely costing tens of millions of dollars. But you can't uninvent Google. Jen Morris thinks that rather than viewing it as the enemy, physicians can harness this tool to educate patients and galvanise self-care strategies. That's where it's important that I think the profession comes to accept that this is the situation we're in and the internet does exist and that information is out there. And instead of kind of trying to push back on that and basically say, please don't Google things, because that sounds more like a dare than (laughs) a serious request, you know, Um, instead of kind of pushing back and hoping and wishing we could go back to a time when this is not the case. So a more helpful response to somebody who's coming in, whether the information they've got is good, bad, indifferent, we may not even know at that point. It's a time for practitioners to take the lead on saying, okay, there is garbage out there, but there's plenty of really solidly good resources out there. I need to learn what those are and actually direct people that way. People generally will will give serious credence to a practitioner saying to them, this website or this source of information or this support group is really great because it respects the intelligence of the adult that you're talking to, if you can approach it that way. I hate, I hate sort of picking up on the semantics all the time, but it, it kind of does influence the, the way we think about this. Um, very often you'll hear the line about the patient's right to choose, and of course that's fundamental. That shouldn't be interpreted as the customer is always right, just because there are people that want to self-medicate with cannabis, for example. We have to trust that the system is evidence-based and for the moment the the evidence-based only justifies it in very few conditions. So I I wonder if that level of understanding and health literacy is is far away for the general public. Hmm. I think there there are a couple of points to be made about that. I mean, the first one is that there is a very distinct difference between what I would call health literacy and what I would call health system literacy. And they are very different things. Um, and health literacy is is based mostly on kind of scientific concepts about, you know, um, biology, chemistry, those kind of things. Then there is health system literacy, which is understanding where to go for what. When do I call an ambulance? You know, what does an occupational therapist do? Who do I talk to about such and such? How long will I have to wait? What does Medicare cover? What do they not cover? What's the PBS? It's a very different set of questions. And the second lot sometimes gets forgotten, I think. Um, But also... In my experience, there are a lot of health practitioners out there whose health system literacy is actually not maybe as good as it should be. Um, And so I've had the experiences where 
doctors of mine are shocked that I couldn't find, you know, an appointment with such and such a specialist within this time period. They've never had to go out and actually make the 12 phone calls and, <laughs> you know, and, and try and do it. And it's not a criticism. It's just they're living a different life than me. Um, but there's a lot of a misunderstanding out there about what it means to navigate the system. And I think sometimes that clashes um, with the health literacy question and people will say, for example, the reason that my patient won't, you know, they will use the word comply um, with such and such treatment. You know, they don't get it. They don't understand why it's important or, you know, they don't understand. Maybe actually they, they didn't know where to go. They didn't know what yeah. to do. They couldn't afford it that day. You know, there's a lot of those issues getting crossed over. You know, the, the patient is not always right in a factual sense, but the practitioner is not always right either. And there's not sufficient and honest and open, transparent recognition of that fact. And I think it's important for us to understand that and everyone to understand that there is a difference between a patient's factual knowledge and their knowledge of themselves or the person that they're caring for. Yeah, yeah. One of my colleagues um, who has done a lot of work in paediatric space as a consumer talks a lot about, for example, the critical language of patients. So when you have, you know, a parent of a child in a hospital and they're saying something's not right, you know, she's not normally like this, she's just a bit floppier than usual, what that is is what we call the critical language of patients where actually their experience of themselves is relevant in that moment. And I don't think we give enough credence to to people's expertise about their own bodies and their own lives and their own experiences and that's really important. You you had quite a strong statement about, you know, these same problems being solved by the same people with the same preconceptions. Um, have you felt this kind of resistance that, um, that people aren't prepared to look outside the box or to, to solutions that they haven't come up with in the past? Yeah, I think two of the two of the common responses that I will see and hear um, when these issues are being discussed. Uh, the first one is is that there's this understanding or this belief that only people who really you know are on the ground every day, who work in the system every day, can really understand it and therefore can really solve it and really get it and really know what's going to work. Mm. However, I think it does it does create a barrier to I guess people being able to lift their gaze a little bit from the inculcation that they experience on a daily basis. And, and one of the other things I, I hear a lot and I read a lot is that, that there's something special about healthcare that makes it incomparable to any other industry or any other place where problems have been successfully solved or at least yeah. successfully reduced. And I think it is about understanding that any system is really just made up of small parts and it is easy for all of us to kind of just throw the difficult things in the but it's the system basket. System factors are a thing. However, on the other side of that, we need to recognise that we, and I mean patients as well, we are the system. Individually, we make it up. And so one person probably cannot solve the problems or even a problem in the system, but we can do our best to not contribute to it. And if every individual does their best to not contribute to it as often as they can the multiplying effect of that is really significant. Many thanks to Jen Morris and Des Gorman for contributing to this episode of Pomegranate Health. 
The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Make sure to download the next episode where we'll hear from some members of the new RACP Consumer Advisory Group. Go to our website, racp.edu.au forward slash podcast to find a list of all the references we've talked about today. You can log CPD credits there and participate in the discussion via the comments section. The more the merrier, so please leave a review of the podcast at your favourite pod browser or tell your colleagues to check it out. I'm Mick Cabazzini. Until next time.